Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, political scientist at Loon University. Remember that you can connect with the show on Twitter at SMNP Podcast or visit us on the web at socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, we're going to mix up the format a bit and have two guests, both of whom are involved with a new select committee established by the House of Lords called the Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee. So House of Lords obviously being involved with British politics. This is a committee that's been established to collect evidence from a variety of public stakeholders about the effects of digital technology on democracy, both the pros and the cons. And while we'll dive more into the scope of the inquiry during the interview, let me introduce the guests first. And they are Lord David Putnam and Dr. Catherine Domit. Lord Putnam is the chair of the Lords Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee. He sits on the labor bench in the House of Lords and, fun fact, won an Oscar for producing the 1981 flick Chariots of Fire, which is kind of cool. Dr. Catherine Domit, meanwhile, is a senior lecturer at the Department of Politics and International Relations at Sheffield University, and her research focuses on digital campaigning, democratic politics, and data use by political campaigns and activist groups. And she's a special advisor to the committee, and we're going to talk about the different roles that the chair and the special advisor have, but also the role that the public has in submitting evidence, which if you'd like, you can do. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And what's also cool is that the committee has all of their meetings broadcast and archived on their website. I'll link to that in the show notes. And if you want to take your nerd to the next level, you can download the audio files of those committee hearings and put them on your phone. And they're kind of like podcasts. They're pretty cool. I've listened to a few of them and actually got quite a bit out of them. So especially if you're interested in British politics and how lawmakers there are trying to craft some policy around digital media use and democracy, can definitely recommend checking those out. So it's kind of cool with two guests in the interview. So Lord Putnam is going to tell us about kind of the scope of the inquiry and kind of what's going on so far, whereas Dr. Domit will tell us more from a kind of research academic perspective, what role do these select committees play? We'll also talk a bit about her research looking at data use and campaigns, and I'll link to some studies there in the show notes as well. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Lord Putnam, Chair of the Lord's Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee, and Dr. Kate Domit, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Politics and International Relations at Sheffield University. David, Kate, thanks for taking the time out and welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Thanks a million. Great for having you. All right. So, David, could you start out by giving us a brief introduction into the motivations behind launching the Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee? And in particular, I'm curious as to why now? Well, the committee was chosen from a number of different potential inquiries by the House of Lords Liaison Committee. They get a lot of suggestions each year of things that could become inquiries. And this one I kind of came out of the hat, I guess. Uh, but they could see it was an important topic because digital technologies are changing everything around us, including the very nature of our democracy. How we understand democracy, our role as citizens in relation to the state, and what we understand as truth will continue to alter as the impact the digital world develops further. So the aim of the committee is to produce a report that will make recommendations to the government, which they have to acknowledge and eventually respond to. And the big question we're looking at is how can digital technology be used to support and promote responsible participatory democracy and not undermine it? Outside of a solution to climate change, I'd suggest there's no bigger question to be asking ourselves right now. 
Hmm. And I want to dig in a bit more into the, the work of the committee. But first, a question for Kate. Um, you're an academic expert, not only in the political uses of digital tech, but also policy development and regulation around digital. So can you outline what a select committee is and the role that these committees actually serve in the British Parliament's broader agenda? Yeah, so select committees are a really great feature of Parliament. So we have them in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, but in the Lords, they're basically small groups of members of the House of Lords. And they're usually selected from across the political spectrum. So we kind of have members from different parties, but also crossbench peers. And they basically come together to examine an important area of public policy. So they look at specific issues, and sometimes these can be quite short, narrowly focused investigations. Other times they can be you know, quite long and really quite broad ranging. And then they report on a given area and a topic. And as David mentioned, you know, we see these reports, they make key recommendations to government, and then the government kind of has to come back and respond. So they're a really good way of driving the policy debate and hearing from the government about what its position is on key topics. And kind of from my role on the committee, I work as a special advisor for the committee. And what we see is they bring in kind of academic experts or people with specific policy expertise to help inform the work of the Lords. So essentially, the committee will produce a report that then the government has to respond to kind of in, in what setting? Um, it becomes a, a formal response. I think it's six weeks. Uh, it used to be six weeks, uh, but now it's two months. It's ex been extended over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, the government just seems to take longer. They then normally would be a, a debate in the House of Lords looking at the government's response. And that then hopefully turns into uh, probably in our case, more likely to be amendments to existing bills that are going through. The online harms bill should be going through Parliament about that time. The great benefit of the system is that you create a caucus of cross-party, uh, in our case, peers, who have been through the evidence, have arrived at a certain number of conclusions. And what's interesting from the point of view of the minister at the front bench, he or she is confronted by, hopefully, a barrage of well-informed uh, opinions, which consolidate around a number of recommendations, which hopefully then say become amendments and become law. Right. And I, I want to ask a bit more about the, the evidence process. But first, let's cover the kind of thematic scope of the committee. And there's six key areas. I'm going to read them out. Uh, one is transparency in political campaigns, then privacy and anonymity, misinformation, the effects of digital technology on public discourse, how technology can facilitate democracy, and the development of effective digital literacy. And so that's kind of a rather extensive scope of inquiry, I think, ranging from formal electoral politics to kind of the more uh, routine day-to-day -day uses of digital media. So I'm wondering, how are these six areas chosen, and are some given more priority over others? Well, Kate and I can both probably chip in on this, but the committee started by taking a broad definition of democracy. Uh, so as well as covering the effects of digital technologies on the electoral process and political campaigns, we wanted to consider the effects of technology on political debate far more broadly and the wider public's engagement with and participation in political discourse, all of which seem to have been drifting, certainly from my perspective, in the wrong direction in recent years. So that when we looked at the work that was already being done in this space, including related parliamentary inquiries, recent reports and academic work, and some of the issues that loom large in the public consciousness, it was very clear there was a, a lot going on, a lot that had happened, but frankly, not a, not a lot of progress in the, at the government's end. Kate did, I think, a spectacularly good piece of work for us in tracking back on the various recommendations and committees and reports that have been done in this area. And what was alarming was how much action had taken place, Kate? Yeah, I think um, 
one of the things I think is really great about what the House of Lords committees are able to do is actually take these really broad sweeping focuses, because it's not often that we get a space within the policy arena where you can really take some time to set out a really broad scope, consider and, you know, gather all this evidence together and discuss it, dig in, you know, invite people who've potentially given us written evidence to come in and expand and explain their ideas. And so although we've kind of started out with a very big focus, through that process, you actually end up really coming in to focus on a, a smaller number of issues and working out you know, where this committee is going to be able to make its unique contribution. And I think that's why the piece of work that Lord Putnam referred to that I was able to do was a really interesting place for me to start um, contributing to the work of the committee, because we've seen a lot of attention being paid to these issues of digital and its impact on democracy in the last couple of years. They really have come to the fore of public consciousness. But we've also seen a you know, startling lack of action, really, on a lot of these issues. So by starting with that really broad scope, we were able to review what has happened in a whole range of different areas, from you know, election campaigning to digital literacy to positive um, uses of digital technology around deliberation and things like that, review what's been going on and where the debate has got up to, and then make sure that we're building and trying to push that debate further so that we can bring about meaningful change. You know, when you look at the sweep of change that's occurred in this country, and the fact that certainly, in, and I've been around a long time, that both culturally and politically, we tend to see a drift across the Atlantic from the United States uh, of things that begin to change. They change culturally, they change politically. I'm still kind of recovering from Citizens United, the Citizens United decision. And the idea that that is affecting uh, our political discourse in this country, which is in turn being amplified by the digital world. These are very scary. From the point of view of an old guy like me, these are very scary developments. So that's one of the reasons I was eager to put myself forward for the committee. And out of the blue, I was chosen to chair it. Definitely. And I want to ask a bit more about those different um, global arrangements between uh, UK and, and the US um, a little bit later on. But first, I'd like to talk about the the evidence and the role that that plays in the committee's work. So you put out a call for evidence, which asks for input from various public stakeholders on questions that cover these six priority areas. Can you talk briefly about the type of evidence you've already received and sort of who's providing it and what insights you've gleaned from it so far? Yeah, so we've received a really wide range of evidence from a whole different kind of individual, really. So there's individual members of the public give evidence. We've had evidence from academic and different kind of groups and collectives and research centers, um, organizations, corporations, and think tanks. And I think one of the interesting things that I've found in thinking about evidence, especially from an academic perspective, is that evidence in the parliamentary sense is quite different from academic evidence. You know, it's not about providing you know sources and like robust empirical data to to support your claims it, a whole range of different perspectives and types of insight are valuable for the parliamentary process because it's really about understanding a whole different range of perspectives that means that you know any individual can contribute evidence to the committee and it's something that we really encourage so i suppose thinking about some of the themes that have emerged uh, in what we've gathered so far so I think for us, what was a, a, a really nice feature is that a lot of the evidence has really focused on the positive effects of the internet on democracy. I think we often hear a lot about the doom and gloom and the, the threats and the concerns that are raised. 
But actually, you know, we've had examples from individual members of the public, you know, praising the way that the internet has given people a voice and that it's allowed political groups to be more effective in their outreach and their ability to hold politicians to account. So there are some really good stories emerging from the way that technology is impacting on democracy. I think we have also had quite a lot of evidence about the concerns. So whether that's thinking about the potential that technology um, can lead to polarisation and, and might fuel populism. Um, I think, you know, it's about the balance between these kind of desire to and the ability of the internet to make it easier to get involved in the democratic process, but also the concerns that it can... Um, it doesn't just give power to, to people who've been voiceless. It also brings um, new dimensions to the power debate in, you know, giving corporations significant amounts of power, potentially giving actors who have motivations that we don't think are democratically positive power um, in the system. Right. And then the people who provided evidence, some of them are called in to answer questions um, before the committee, I guess, to get uh, kind of deeper uh, into the topic. And I was curious because I was listening to a few of the sessions and I was wondering, you know, is there any risk that these uh, committees are used as lobbying efforts, basically? Because I was listening particularly to one about the ASA, the Advertising uh, Sort of Bureau in the UK, and it seemed like they were kind of lobbying for certain positions or ways to craft the regulation in a way that works with their uh, sort of organization. So is there any kind of uh, potential use for those committees as lobbying efforts? It's interesting. You've chosen a, a good example. I mean, I would have thought if that's what the ASA were doing, and it's possible, uh, they failed miserably. Uh, because <laughs> frankly, all they did was enforce, and I think it's a unanimous sense in the committee, reinforce the view that uh, that for the worst possible reasons, they were eager not to get embroiled in the regulation of political advertising or anything in this in this area. And in a sense, we are looking at a group of fairly reluctant regulators, uh, yet the problem clearly is a lack of effective regulation, a lack of understanding of the importance of regulation, and indeed a lack of understanding of the way that all industries, the digital world being the most recent, in the end had to succumb to something other than marketplace solutions. So I think the example you've chosen is brilliant because if they say wanted to lobby to leave the, the status quo as it was, I think they failed utterly. Just add to that, I think when we're selecting witnesses to come before the committee, um, you know, we, we really think quite carefully about who can come in and, and really add something to the inquiry. So, you know, the, the oral evidence sessions are a chance to really dig in and allow the members of the committee to get more insights and to really kind of get the most out of witnesses because whilst we're able to set a number of standard questions that we issue for the written call for evidence you know that obviously only gives people so much scope to expand um, and give us insight into what's going on so we try and invite people who have specific expertise that we're interested in exploring you know that does mean that you know potentially sometimes someone can come with an agenda but then we always try and have you know um, different perspectives around the table so that we're really building up a rich picture of what's going on. Mm. And I'd like to ask a question for Kate, get a little uh, academic evidence into the, the podcast. Um, you've written recently in uh, an article in Internet Policy Review about the wide range of ways that data is being used in political campaigns. So in terms of who's using it, where they're getting this data, and how the data is informing campaign communication. So I was wondering if you could just recap that argument for us, maybe how it relates to any potential future regulation of digital campaigning. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so I think that article is quite interesting because it's, it's ended up dovetailing with some of the work that's going on with the committee. And 
I think sometimes when we talk about regulation and about the phenomenon that's happening online, it can be quite imprecise exactly what we mean and what the kind of concerns are or even what it is we're actually all talking about. So in that article, I was really interested in what we meant by the idea of data-driven campaigning. Because it's a, it's a term that over the last couple of years, I've seen banded around and used in a whole range of different ways. And it's often kind of connected to this idea that data-driven campaigning is of a democratic concern and we really need to do something radical and stamp it out and it's a, you know, a bad practice. And, you know, I've studied the history of campaigning and how political parties and campaigners of different types conduct their activities. And it's by no means the case that data-driven campaigning is new. It's a very established feature. So I was interested in looking at well, you know, what is it that's going on and what is it precisely that people are concerned about? So the article kind of attempts to um, pick apart and offer a, a framework for thinking about the different ways that data can be used in campaigning. So, you know, that's looking at, as you mentioned, you know, who's using the data, where does it come from and, and what's it being used to do? And I think we need to have more of that kind of conceptual clarity about exactly what it is that we're looking at so that we can start thinking about the practices that are concerning. So in the article towards the end, I start talking about, you know, the consistencies in regulation. And there are definitely some instances where the emergence of digital technology has allowed new forms of information to become available. And it isn't being regulated in a consistent manner with data that is available offline. But I also think that it highlights that actually there are quite a few areas where people are voicing concerns and saying something needs to be done, but they're established principles of data use. So if that's the case, then maybe it's not just about fixing existing regulations to make them apply online. Maybe people are actually calling for, you know, us to rethink quite radically um, the acceptability of data use in campaigns. Great. And I'll link to that article in the show notes for our listeners who, who want to read it. Um, but I have a kind of broad question here, which is I think one of the things you argue in that article is that, you know, there's this very diverse range of different um, campaigning practices and the ways that data is being used. And so how can the work of the committee possibly address a phenomenon that's kind of so wide ranging in the actors and different processes that are involved? I think one of the things we are doing and we could probably follow up on is looking at uh, responses from other countries. What I'm beginning to understand is that the responses we need only seem to be triggered when there's a sense of an existential threat. So we're taking evidence from Estonia, for example. We've looked at the what Finland's doing about the digital literacy. Where there's an evident threat, countries seem to be taking the right steps and, and doing the right things. That doesn't exist in the UK, and I don't really think it yet exists in the US. But there's no question there are bad actors out there to whom the object is confusion. They're not really interested in necessarily who wins an election. What they like the idea is contested elections. What they like the idea is contested notions of democracy, because frankly, for a growing number of people, democracy is not seen as a very efficient form of government. So if you believe, as I do, in plural representative democracy, that's something you have to cling on to and accept that that's an, an existential battle. If we lose this battle, we'll end up with a form of government and governance, which may well be quite effective, but it certainly won't be what I grew up with. You know, the committee can't possibly hope to tackle this the all the kind of concerns that we're we're aware of but just because a task is hard doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to bring about change and i think kind of sitting in the uk you know a country that's been seen as a 
a world leader on regulation and that's tried to position itself as really kind of setting the debate and thinking about the the way that we should be using tech um, and regulating it. I think, you know, the committee is one mechanism by which we can really start to drive forward change and be setting out that agenda of what in an ideal world we think should be happening. So it's a small part of a much bigger debate, which is, you know, people within companies, within um, the policymaking community, really trying to thrash out how we're going to make recent developments in society work for us rather than undermining our democracy. Hmm. And I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing up different countries and kind of putting this into a global perspective, because I have a question just on that. And it kind of relates to the British, American, and then um, global dimensions of what the, the committee is looking at. So um, on the one hand, you have the committee taking place in the UK, evaluating these tech issues largely through the perspective of the British regulatory environment. Then there's the fact that most of these companies are American, which is a topic that has come up in, in quite a bit of the um, committee hearings I've listened to. And then finally, you have the impact of these digital technologies on a sort of global scale, right? Not just in Britain or the US. So how do you see these kind of different geographical dimensions as a challenge or perhaps an opportunity? We may have different views, so let's rehearse both of them. I mean, for me, one of the great tragedies of Brexit is that the EU as an institution was well-placed to begin to address these issues. It was well-placed for two reasons. First of all, the commission itself is not directly elected, therefore isn't having to look over its shoulder all the time at what is or isn't popular. Uh, secondly, it's well-led in terms of Margaret of and, and others who've certainly got a grip of these issues and understand these issues and are specialists in these issues. In the UK, typically, and maybe in, and recently in the US, you know, we have rapid changes of, of, of cabinet members and, and secretaries of state. And the opportunity for any individual minister to develop the kind of skills and expertise in this area are very, very limited. So we've, we've lost out badly, I believe, in the UK in separating ourselves away from a European regulatory environment. Um, but we can only deal with what we deal with. Our job is to lean into the government here, get them to understand the long-term impacts of inactivity, and then try and come up with the regulatory processes and regulatory organizations to at least address the more egregious areas, which for one reason or another, the digital monoliths uh, are choosing not to. Mm. Kate, do you want to chip in? Yeah, I guess um, the issue that I really think is quite interesting in this is, is obviously how you think about making recommendations for a company like Facebook or Google, which you know are global, and we are just one country, which they're having to accommodate to. But I think that's an acknowledged challenge. But I think it also is a bit of an opportunity because you know, in focusing on the UK and improving the UK legislative and regulatory environment, you know, we can really think about how we want these big global platforms to be operating in our specific electoral context. I think we can point to how we think they should be operating globally, but, you know, I think you've got to start with the challenge that's immediately in front of you and think about how we want these companies and systems to be working within our democracy. I think if we just abdicate the responsibility for thinking about how these companies should be operating, then, you know, who is going to step into that space and kind of come up with the framework for the global good practice for democracy of companies like Facebook? You know, there isn't an obvious actor there to pick up that challenge. So I think we've got to have you know, specific countries working on what works best for them, but then also taking every available opportunity as we're trying to through the committee by getting foreign experts in to really share best practice, to share knowledge and to work together collaboratively to work out 
where there are examples of good practice around regulation and working with these tech companies and how countries can you know start working together to make consistent demands of these big multinational corporations right right and i have a question for each of you about the normative pros and cons of digital tech which i think the committee is quite clear that it's looking into both and of course you know you need to weigh the pros and the cons uh, before making any policy proposals so to david first you have a history of approaching politically sensitive themes through film whether that's kind of national identity and religion and chariots of fire or more recently a documentary about the environmental impact of oil expeditions in the arctic so i guess my question is how do you see social media's impact on democracy in relation to more traditional forms of cultural expression like films? Isn't social media in many ways the democratization of that kind of expression with less barriers to entry than film production? Um, I think that uh, the impact of digital, let's, let's back off a bit from social media for a second, has been a democratization of certainly of sorts. I went last night to listen to a speech by Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, and uh, he was very clear about what they're trying to do and the way in which they're trying to appeal to different cultural norms and at the same time export some of those cultural norms. For example, believe it or not, Turkish soap operas have become hugely popular in other parts of the world now because they speak to certain eternal values, family values that a lot of other television just doesn't. Um, I think this is a very, very complex, a really complex area. And back off for one second. I happen to live in Republic of Ireland. Republic of Ireland is particularly vulnerable in these areas because the big tech players are such huge employers in Ireland and have such a huge economic influence on the country that it's very difficult to come up with rational or rather politically acceptable and rational answers to some of these more difficult social questions. Hence my sort of suggestion that the European Commission, which in a sense is a regulator, it's not political in a classical sense, it's a regulatory body. It's a transnational regulatory body. So a country like Ireland needs to sit behind a transnational regulatory body in order to come up with serious answers to what in some respects are massively important economic and social questions within their own countries. I hope that makes sense. It's a very, very important issue. Ireland is both the beneficiary of the social media revolution, but it's also extremely vulnerable to being exploited. Right, right. I get that. It's an interesting, interesting take on it. Um, and to Kate, in your research, you've been exploring satellite campaigns which you define as vote-seeking activist campaigns that aren't controlled by a political party. And so these campaigns with more or less degrees of professionalism rely quite heavily on digital technology and can enable grassroots organizing without the strict guidance of a campaign. So if regulation were to clamp down on how data and targeting are used for politics, might this have an adverse effect on grassroots initiatives as well? Yeah, I think this is a real challenge. And it's something that We've really seen the Electoral Commission in the UK who uh, have oversight in this area really grapple with because it's, you know, how do you regulate practices that we think are concerning without discouraging people from engaging? And it is a really tricky question. I think the way that I come down on it is that I think we need to think about regulation and what we mean by that term as, you know, not necessarily having the same regime for everyone. I'm really interested in this kind of idea of having you know, almost like a sliding scale of regulation where it's very light touch at the bottom for those who are spending relatively low amounts of money, um, who aren't really engaging in these sophisticated targeting practices, but are just trying to be active and play a democratic role, as opposed to these very large, you know, well-resourced, highly coordinated, um, professionalized campaigns 
which have a bit more infrastructure behind them and can therefore cope with the higher regulatory burden. And, you know, you would want to know a little bit more about those activities. So I think it's about keeping the idea of proportionality in mind when we think about regulation, because I think that term can be seen as something quite scary and, you know, very burdensome and time consuming, but it doesn't necessarily need to be. So it's about having the appropriate amount of oversight and control to make sure that negative and concerning practices aren't happening. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of tricky questions within a very um, broad scope, but very important questions. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the final report. And um, Kate, David, thanks so much for taking the time out and sharing the committee's work with us. Very thanks pleasure. ever so much. I've just been speaking to Lord David Putnam, Chair of the Lord's Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee, and Dr. Kate Domit, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Politics and International Relations at Sheffield University. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Next time, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ben Epstein, an associate professor at DePaul University, where we'll be looking at the role of history when studying modern political campaigning. That's a fun one. But until then, I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Elmo. See you next time. <laughs>